This is the Cascadia Podcasters Podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Rigdon. On this episode, we have Brendan O'Mara from the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing awesome, Jason. I got to say, this is really exciting, and I'm so thrilled to be on your show and kind of uh, representing uh, Eugene in this episode, Eugene, Oregon. So I'm just, I'm thrilled to be talking to you, and thanks so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Could you tell me a little bit about your show? Well, my show, like Creative Nonfiction Podcast or or CNF is like what I like to call it. It's just conversations with great writers, filmmakers, uh, radio producers, podcast producers about the art and craft of telling true stories, uh, otherwise known as creative nonfiction. And it's um, it's a show that takes about an hour. I uh, I love just having these conversations every single week with with these great uh, tellers of true tales. So it's a very, it's kind of a narrow, narrow niche or niche. I never know how to pronounce that word. And uh, that's what we do. We, we dig into, we chart the, the journey of the writer or the artist and chart their, uh, chart their journey and also how they deal with self-doubt, limiting beliefs. It's just, uh, it's, it's conversations where I like to chart the artist's journey uh, as well as how they deal with rejection, self-doubt, limiting beliefs, uh, influential books, key mentors, what books they reread, and and so forth. So it's um, and then we oftentimes they'll have a book or a movie out. So I I will sort of weave that into the conversation about and how they approach the work, the daily routines they have in place, so they get the work done when things are getting hard. And just letting the listener know that no matter where they are in their their journey, so to speak, that they're not alone. Even these masters like like Laura Hillenbrand or Susan Orlean or David Grant, these titans of narrative nonfiction, they are going through the similar grind as as you are just starting out. So it helps put your arm around the listener and let them know like, hey, you're not alone. Even these masters are struggling. And how long have you been doing this show? I started it, let's see, it's in its seventh year. So I started it in um, 2013 and it was, uh, and I, it was kind of just did it whenever I felt like it. And as, as you well know, that, that there's one surefire way to not grow your audience and it's just, just kind of do it when you feel like doing it. So about, about two and a half years ago. I really leaned into it full time, like uh, doing it once a week, every week and haven't stopped since. Uh, mainly I was like, you know, I, this is a thing I like to do. This is a thing I love to do. I love the the conversations I get to have, get to really kind of dig deep with with people and uh, get into their get deep into their books and their pro uh, their process and conversations that uh, that I always wanted to have. And. I, I tabled a lot of my own writing to kind of lean into the show and see if I just showed up every single week, what would happen? And as a result, showing up every week, drip by drip, the show just started to get more traction. And it kind of has become a go-to place for for people to come on and uh, share their process, share their uh, and promote promote their work and have these wonderful uh, sort of intimate conversations about why they even got into this mess because as a uh, Glenn Stout who's been a frequent guest on the show has said like nothing about this profession makes sense there's no logic to it 
in terms of writing. And so being able to have these conversations is a way to feel less lonely. And that was uh, kind of the genesis of the show back in 2013, just being a freelancer, kind of uh, just alone in my office all the time. And I wanted to have these conversations to appease my own loneliness. And that's kind of how it was to kind of build a community around telling true stories. So that's kind of the where it where it really stemmed from. And and also just at the time I started it, also it was I was feeling a lot of feelings of bitterness and resentment and jealousy among among peers, especially my own age, who seemed to be like on this meteoric rise to glossy magazines and everything. And I was just like sitting in my sitting alone in my house and just doing these things I wasn't proud of. And I would just get really sort of be filled with these toxic feelings. So to kind of rechannel that energy and kind of work through my own jealousies, I figured, you know what, why don't I just try to find a way to celebrate people's work as best as possible? Like just feel ugly. Well, let's read someone's book. Let's celebrate their work. Let's talk about it. And then through that work through my own feelings. And that, that was kind of the, that was really the spark of the show, just appeasing the loneliness and kind of work, try to work through the, a lot of those toxic feelings that I was feeling at the time. And I think a lot of, a lot of artists tend to feel at some point in their career when they start playing the competition Olympics. So seven years is a very long time to be doing a show. How many episodes have you done? Let's see. I, I am uh, tomorrow. Well, I am about to publish my 149th uh, episode uh, uh, tomorrow. I know that that's not going to mean much by the time this goes to air. Um, but uh, the first, let's see, the first three years, I think I did like 31. And so, and then the following three years is when I did, I started showing up every week and have subsequently done, you know, over close to 120 uh, in the last two and a half years. So that's, uh, that's when I do it every single week. Um, haven't, haven't slowed down. And, uh, just that's, uh, the nature of it. I'm just showing up. And, uh, the, like I said, the first, the first go of it was kind of slow, just doing it when I wanted to. And then, um, then just started to lean in with some consistency so people could build their routine around it. If they like the show, they know it's coming to them every Friday, CNF Friday. And, uh, that's what that's what we do. That's I, I use the royal we. It's only me, but that's what we do here at CNF Pod HQ. Do you have any tips for maintaining that level of consistency? A big tip is kind of always fill in the pipeline, as they like to say. It's I've been in, especially that first year when I was really doggone committed to doing it every single week. It's a lot of times you're scrambling. You're like, shoot, like I, I, I gotta. I don't have any, I don't have a guest lined up. How am I going to, how am I going to do this? This is, it's Thursday. I got to publish tomorrow. Like in a real pinch, I sometimes I had some essays that had just come out and I would read an essay and it would just be kind of like a, a 10 minute or 15 minute long episode. That's only happened two or three times. And that was very early on in the sort of the rebirth of the show. But the real key, like I said, filling that pipeline is looking, looking out at and trying to get if you publish once a week, try to maybe record two a week. That way you're always getting one ahead and then you're never playing catch up. It's, it's kind of like you're, if you're budgeting, you want it and you're spending $5 on this a week, but if you budget 10, you're always sort of filling in the kitty. And over time you'll have this nice little 
lump that you can pull from. So if you can get ahead, that's great. So, you know, on my big calendar, I have a big paper calendar that I desk calendar that I tape up on the wall and I use little colored sticky notes to, to kind of schedule things out. And so that way I'm, I'm looking up at that calendar all the time and be like, okay, well, um, Dave Barry, uh, Pulitzer prize winning columnist for uh, Miami Herald. He's got this book coming out in mid April. I got his galley, um, you know, let's say February. It's like, okay, I, if I'm going to have him on the show mid April, when do I have to have the book finished? And so you kind of start plotting out, okay, I don't have to worry about reading this book now. I can uh, put it off until the, maybe the week before. And that way you're kind of budgeting and out allotting time. So you're getting this work. So you never have to scramble because scrambling's the worst because then you don't have time to research. And if you don't have time to research, you're not honoring your guest who is taking 45 minutes to an hour out of their very busy schedule to be on your show. So part of the research and reading the work is honoring that person. And you want to show that you care. And so you want to a lot give yourself that kind of time. Because every episode from the research to conducting the interview and putting it together is at least... For me, 20 hours of work for one for a one hour episode. So you need to make sure that you're budgeting time accordingly and by blocking it out on a big calendar. So to that level of consistency, I, I would say stems from having being sort of organized on a calendar and then trying to like fill that pipeline. So you're never, never scrambling because that then you're shortchanging the research and, and by extension, the the wonderful guests that you're having on your show, whether they're uh, a relatively anonymous writer or someone as big and polished as a Laura Hillenbrand. So what have been some of the biggest challenges of producing this show? I would say uh, publishing a show or producing a show, uh, reading, reading some, reading the books and doing the work when you don't feel like it, because really no one is, no one is holding my feet to the fire. If I don't, if I don't put an episode out, like I don't think, uh, you know, people are going to start, you know, be banging on my door here in Eugene. It's, it's more or less, you're really inwardly driven that you want to keep showing up and be in service of, of a community and in service of your listeners. And so the real challenge is just because it's not always fun. It's a grind to go through and edit uh, an hour or 90 minute long episode. And even to try to trim that by 10%, as I usually try to do, you know, you're, you know, even in this conversation alone, I'm sure your editing years are going up. You're like, okay, he's, he swallowed a little too close to the mic or he snapped his lips or he coughed off mic, And so he's like, and now you're thinking like, Oh, all right, great. I got to find a way to cut that out and make it seem, make him sound at least a little bit coherent and not distracting to a listener. So yeah, the, the, it's things like that. And you notice it. Like I know when I'm recording an interview and someone immediately within five minutes, I'm like, all right, I know, I know their verbal tics. And this is going to be a grind of an edit because <laughs> they were just saying the same things over and over again. I'm like, all right, got to edit out that verbal tick. I got to edit out that lip smack constantly uh, and so forth. So you're just, those things are, are always occurring to me. And so yeah, just getting the the edit you know, going through the edit, publishing when you not, don't necessarily want to, you want to take a week off. But the fact is, like, you just, 
no one grows an audience unless you show up. And I think things get a little bit skewed when you see these, these big podcasts come out on iTunes and they seem to just be super popular right away. But then you realize a lot of these people have baked in audiences of millions of people and they start a podcast and it's huge. Well, yeah, they had an, they brought in Tim Ferriss had millions of people who were buying his books and he started his show. And so he had a great audience built in and his show, but he does good work on his show too. So then you're like, he had to validate it and still keep showing up. So that's a, that's a thing too. Building a workflow, a workable workflow helps, you know, just on, if I have an episode in the can, you know, Tuesday's the day I'll edit it. Wednesday's the day I will probably package it, write the scripts, package. And then Thursday I'll work on the social assets, audiograms, quote cards, and then, and then I will schedule the episode on, on my host. And then Friday I'll, I start promoting it like crazy and then sharing those assets with uh, a publicist and often that writer, or let's just say a writer and that writer that way, hopefully they'll, they'll jump into the fire and promote it as well. Sometimes they do. And it's great. It's usually, usually the ones with the bigger audiences that could really benefit they're usually the ones who choose not to uh, help out a little bit, but uh, you know, you just roll with it and, um, and try to do the best show every single week. But I think like kind of breaking it up into smaller chunks, it, it makes it a lot more manageable to keep approaching it every week. That way you don't burn out and feel like, like, like you're scrambling, like I was saying earlier. And what service do you use to host your uh, files? I, I use the uh, Podomatic, which is just, it's a relic of when I started uh, in, um, to 2013, I, I think I took, took a book out of the library, like, um, like how to start a podcast or something. And Podomatic was one of the things at the time. And, um, so I just, I started with them and just kind of kept with them and they're fine. Uh, they're small enough that if I have a customer service inquiry, uh, they get back to me really quick, which is, which is great. And, and ultimately you just need a place that doesn't, it doesn't like flub up your files. You know, every, every week, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, you know, they get they get the show and I publish it. So I don't really care how cute or well designed the the Podomatic embed player is. It's not ugly, but it's not it it's not like SoundCloud. And uh, let's see what else about about them. Their analytics are subpar, I would say, but. Ultimately, I think you can get into the trap of following stats too much. And I really just want to be putting out a nice show every week and um, and honoring my the people who are just so gracious to download and maybe engage on Twitter and Instagram and and so forth about about the show. And like, that's what I care about. I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds with with numbers because then that might somehow um sort of uh sabotage or you know sort of pervert the the whole message of the show if i'm just trying to go for you know download numbers and everything it's like no you know just put out a nice show and then the numbers will eventually take care of themselves and at least that's the hope and what software do you use to uh, edit your show i just use good old free audacity and that's uh for an interview show that's all you need uh, if I was doing more narrative radio, I'd probably 
invest in pro tools or something of, of that nature that might have a little more power and flexibility. Uh, but for all I'm doing, I'm just layering in my intro, my music, the main interview, the outro and outro music. And that's just like five or six layers on in the workflow. That's all I need. And I, I'm, I've got all the little tools, tools there I need. And it, it, it sounds great. I mean, Lewis Howes of the School of Greatness podcast, his producer uses Audacity. So, I mean, there's someone who gets millions upon millions of downloads and he's just using, you know, free Audacity. It's a, it does, it does the job for what we're doing right now. Yeah. 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 Totally. And then how long does that post-production take usually? Let's see. It takes, all right, let's just say it's an hour interview. So, yeah, if we're taking an hour interview, it takes it at least an hour. I would say probably two to three hours at that point to go through and make sure it, make sure I'm getting out. I'm making the guest sound as good as possible, getting out all those verbal tics, those weird, if they swallow too close to the mic or, or, or glug some water or they're chewing something or snapping their lips, those things, clip them out. If I get a little bit too wordy in a question, I've gotten much better at getting to the point. Uh, but if I'm a little wordy, I'll edit myself down, uh, not out of ego, but at least just to be less distracting to to the listeners because I want them to be really focusing on the guest. So if I get a, a bit verbose, um, I, I'll, I'll trim me out of it a little bit just to move things along. Um, if if something at the beginning of the interview happens and they say something at the very end that really feels like it should go to the beginning, this gets really tricky. And sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't, but sometimes I will move that question in that part. So they're next to each other. So that it's more congruent, but that's kind of hard to locate in the file. And I, I try to just ask questions in such a way that things won't repeat themselves in that nature. And uh, that way it's um, sort of editing and dictating the flow of the conversation right from the question instead of meandering all over the place. That can be distracting for a listener. And how do you record your guests? Are they in person or are they all remote? I would say 99% remote. Uh, I occasionally have had some people in, in studio and those are, that's really cool. I love being able to look you know, Elena Passarello in the eye and we can really laugh and uh, just you know, have a, have a good time. Like we recorded for over 90 minutes and I was like, yeah, I think we should probably, probably, probably end now. Be mindful of your time. She thought we were there for like 45 minutes. You know, we just had like a good, good chemistry. And that, I think that happens more often in person and I can really read the body language. I can see if something is really clicking. If I'm saying, if I can see how engaged they are, if their face really lights up as they're talking about something, it's like, oh, okay, this is something that they really dig. Let's lean into this. Uh, otherwise, it's 99, like I said, 99% of the time, it's over Skype, eCam recorder, and I just do audio to cut down on bandwidth. Uh, so I can tell by the energy of their voice if they're like really feeling something, and then I can really lean in. And it also lets me take notes without them seeing that. And uh, they, that way they don't think I'm checking out, but I'm, if they say something cool, I, I make a little note to myself, kind of like putting a pin in it. And uh, I'll be like, oh, you said something, you know, I, I really want to go back to something you said. That was really, really cool. I'd love to hear you expand on that. And then, and then we just kind of go from there. And so then how do you prepare for your guests? 
So uh, if they have a book out, I read the book. If they have a new book, uh, if they have several books, like I'd love to have David Remnick on the show. He's the editor of The New Yorker. Uh, but I'm not even going to knock on his door until I've read all his books. I, I've got Lennon's Tomb, which is like his first one on my shelf. And so I'll go through that. I'll go through that catalog. Um, and you know, so reading all their work or most of their work, so you get a sense of what really clicks for them. Then I, uh, I'll then you just Google them. Google them and then go through and read, read the interviews they've done. And... If they said something really cool there, you can be like, oh, yeah, in this interview you did, you know, you said this. I'd be like, I, I, how do you feel about that? Do you, can you expand on that? Or if they've done a bunch of podcasts, listen to those podcasts because you want to try to you don't want to be asking them questions they get all the time. The worst the worst is when you ask them a question. They're like, oh, I get that all the time. And you're like, damn it. I'm trying to come up with something original here to challenge you and make you think in a way that is so that you're not on autopilot. And the best and the the best compliment you can get is when you ask them a question, be like, Oh, that's a really good question. I haven't heard that before. And then inwardly you're fist pumping, like, yes, I got them. And in a sense that I like, yes, I I'm they're they're engaged in a way that they haven't been engaged before. And that's like the victory of the interviewer. And so it's it's going through Debbie Millman does this, a host of Design Matters. She's brilliant. She's it does so much research and that's exactly what she does. She'll dig through the archive of everybody's interview and ch- and she does likes to do an arc of a life. And then she, she reads back oftentimes what they say. And then she'll be like, well, what do you make of that? Or, or do you still feel that way? Or can you expand on that? And so that way you're getting them to kind of think more deeply on something that they might've said in the past. So yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of reading, a lot of note taking, but you only have an hour, so you have to kind of really drill down on certain things and, you know, hopefully you get to what you want to get to. And do you have any tips for getting people to agree to come on your show? I think the the big – always start – I think Seth Godin says, like, if you were going to start – if you were going to start your show, like, interview, your first episode should be with your sister. Then your second episode should be with your neighbor. And then your third episode should be with – like your teacher. And, and so anyway, you you start really close to you and then you start rippling outwards. You know, I would have been a fool to say to on episode one and be like, Hey, Cheryl Strayed can want to come on my show. And, and, and she'd be like, what, who are you? And no, I don't know what your body of work is. And so, yeah, you start with people you kind of know and you have that network and then you start to kind of parlay that. And hopefully hopefully you can get a, a big fish at some point. You do need big fish to bait the bigger and bigger fish. And I really credit Glenn Stout for coming on my show. I think he was the 13th, uh, 13th guest. And he's the series editor of Best American Sports Writing, the best-selling author of such books like uh, The Young Woman in the Sea. Uh, he's just a brilliant writer and historian and just a great editor and very generous with his time and insight. And having him on then allows you, like, when you go pitch whoever you want, be like, oh, and then, you know, past guests have included, you know, Glenn Stout, who's best American sports writer. And then all of a sudden that other bigger fish is like, oh, okay, I I know who that is. And, oh, okay, so if I go on this show, this guy 
has some gra- like he's got some gravitas to the to the show. And then when you get another one, it's like these days, if I even when I'm pitching people who are fairly anonymous, I just be like, you know what, you know, past guests of the show have been Susan Orlean, Laura Hillenbrand, David Grant, Eli Saslow, Tracy Kidder, Ted Conover, Roy Peter Clark, and 150 others. And I'd be like, you'd be in really good company. And so like being able to say that, that that's the social proof uh, of the show. And it might not be this Titanic top of the charts show, but the fact that these people come on the show and often repeatedly is validation to have the kind of conversations that I hope uh, people enjoy having. And by all accounts, they are enjoying it. And do you have any tips for people that are maybe thinking about doing a podcast or maybe just starting out doing podcasting? Yeah, just start. Don't don't get too geeky. Uh, don't get too blocked by the need to have the best microphone or the best gear. My rig for my very first few shows was laughably archaic and primitive. It was a landline on speakerphone with an iPhone recorder, basically recording them off the speaker. And I'm leaning into the phone and into this recorder too. So it's, and they, it, it sounds terrible. It's why I leave my early episodes up. Cause I want people to like, listen to those and be like, Oh, it can sound like that garbage. And you can, I, I like to think that you can see the progression. If you want to go all the way back to 150 episodes and see how, how lame it is, how lame the sound quality was, because I just started, I, I didn't, I didn't worry about it being perfect or sounding perfect. And I think that's a lot of people think perfect before before they start anything, whether it's a book. There's this idea in your head of like the perfect podcast or the perfect book or the perfect movie. And then you start working and then you realize how hard it is. And you can't marry and bridge that gap between your perfect vision and the work you're actually capable of. And so you just need to kind of start and labor your way through and not be and use obscurity to your advantage. Like early on, no one's going to listen to your show. Like use that time to get better. So, you know, take that, take that time. So I, the best advice is, is just kind of Google around, do a little bit of research, but not so much that you get paralyzed by the amount of information. Then just start just uh, that recorder on an iPhone is not that bad. You know, if you do it in person, you can use it like a microphone you can talk right into it and then put it in front of someone else's mouth and go back and forth and then just roll with it. And then as you get better and more skilled, start to level up, you know, start my, my next microphone was a blue snowball and that thing was better, but you can't measure any levels out of it. it. You have to really, it's, if you got too close to it, it was got clipped and was way too hot. Um, if too, so that was tricky. And then I went from there to like an AT, 2100 or something um, by Audio Technica. And that was really great too. And I actually still use that one if I have a guest in the audience uh, in, the, in the studio. And now I use a, a Heil PR40. And this thing is wonderful. I, I don't think I'd upgrade from this uh, for a while. It's on a boom arm and a shock mount. And it, it, it's great. But I didn't get this guy until, geez, you know, 100 episodes into the run. So it's just like start really small and don't be paralyzed by the amount by the gear and the interfaces and blah blah blah. It's just like just start and then work and then get a get a body of work and then then just keep going. And how much time do you think you spend promoting your episodes? 
that I have a kind of a workflow for that. Every day I try to put out a quote card on Instagram, um, an audiogram on Instagram. Uh, that one's just weekly. I do one of those a week. I try to do a quote card every day. I do one maybe Facebook post a day on the uh, creative nonfiction page, uh, not podcast page. And Twitter, I try to schedule maybe five tweets a day. I just kind of batch those and automate them to publish throughout the day. So however, so I maybe a half hour a day, that, that would be about what I like to batch and budget for time-wise. And then if people kind of ping in and respond and retweet or reply uh, throughout the day, if I have some dead time, I'll like kind of just kind of go on my phone and uh, see if anybody said anything and, and kindly reply. I'm not one of those people who, if I tweet, there's going to be like 600 replies. I'm, you know, if one person reply, I, if, yeah, if, if someone replies, I definitely have the, have the time to at least give them, uh, give them like the heavy metal devil horns with a skull and, you know, give them, give them a digital fist bump, so to speak. And do you keep up much with the um, podcast industry news? You know, not a whole lot. I, I, I kind of, in a way, insulate myself from from a lot of that. It's to, maybe to my detriment that I do that because I just kind of have my head down. I'm I'm not the greatest marketer when it comes to my own show. I kind of just try to focus on putting out a good show, and hopefully that does the heavy lifting. But the fact is, you do have to kind of follow, kind of keep your ear to the ground for trends, maybe new ways to uh, think about packaging your, your show. Uh, like I, I, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I bought the, the entire podcast week package from creative live, which is based out of Seattle where you are uh, by chase Jarvis. And even though I'd been doing this for a long time and got kind of proficient at, at the, the interview itself and editing and all that, I, I I've picked up so many cool tips and tricks about just, how to think about it, how to think about promoting, how to think about the the package of it. The like right now my logo is garbage. I've had it forever, uh, but it's garbage. I really need a new one. Even the name of my show is a bit too long. It's uh, in and it has podcasts in the title. Like it's uh, everyone knows it's a podcast. You don't need to be redundant. And so those are little things that I, even now 150 episodes in and in the seventh year of doing it, I'm learning like, oh, this will be, we kind of listen with our eyes before for our ears. We look at the iTunes charts, like a really snappy, catchy logo that might, that in a sense sums up what the show is, is going to bait someone who might be looking for a show about nonfiction storytelling if they type that into the search. So you kind of need to be thinking those things. So in a sense, like I, I, I follow those kind of trends and and keep my ear to the ground for what people are doing creatively to promote their shows and package them in, in a way, because it's all, it's all, it's all part of it. You can't just put it, you know, the table stakes is putting out a good show. You just have to and find your niche and put it, put out a nice show, but then you do have to start thinking about, all right, is it best to tweet at noon on Pacific standard time? You know, you kind of have to think about those things and you might not want to, you might think you just want to put out the great show and then let it do its work. But no, if you're a one man operation, like I am, it's like, you gotta be, 
got to be thinking of all these things. So, so the answer is like, I I'm warming up to having to keep my finger on the pulse of those things because otherwise the show won't grow. And ultimately I want to grow the community and hopefully inspire people to, to, to just uh, feel like they're less alone and, and to pursue a true storytelling, which is the ethos of the show. Yeah, the tweet time thing is something that I've really learned. You know, I wake up like six o'clock in the morning, take care of my email, and I was doing all my tweets then too, like promoting stuff. But no one was, no one's on then. And so I started moving to like 11 o'clock and then got a, like a lot more engagement. Yeah, it's really, it's weird. Like I, I just Googled that a little while ago, like optimum times to post this, that, and the other. And it it tends to work. And it's, I, I'm not into like hack culture, but and I'm just into, you know, just keep showing up, keep doing the work. You know, uh, people are going to be in for a quick fix. And a lot of people, you're just, if you're in it and you love it and you have perseverance, you'll you'll outlast most of the people. And that's kind of my game. I think my talent is being able to outlast people. Uh, I just, I'm just going to tortoise in the hair. I'm just going to keep on crawling along with my turtle shell and just keep on, keep on like just slowly step by step, just grind along. Here we go. Just slow and steady. And, and so it's, it's weird. I, I, sometimes you'll, you'll put out an episode that you think is really great and then it it doesn't get any traction. And then some other people, it's just, you just have to keep, you just have to keep doing the work and you can't really trust in these sort of the, these other kind of metrics. You just kind of have to get in the, get in there and do it and just do it to the best of your ability. And eventually things will kind of catch fire. And how do you discover new podcasts? Well, I, I, let's see, I probably word of mouth is where I, where I get maybe most of my recommendations from, um, when I listen to, you know, I have a core batch of, uh, podcasts that I listen to, like Seth Godin's Akimbo, uh, Chase Jarvis live, um, the moment with Brian Koppelman. I've been a little lukewarm on him of late. Just he's, I, I, I have a pet peeve of people who tend to talk too long when they're interviewing. And, uh, so, uh, sometimes he can go as long as two or three minutes without asking a question. Like I, I keep a, I'll keep a stopwatch on this. Cause that's kind of like, me being a quarterback and going to the film and reading the defense. Like I'm just like Debbie Millman is great. She usually a- asks a question 15 seconds tops and she's out. And then she lets her guests go. And then there are some people who are like, they'll ask a question and then they just keep going and talking. It's like, just ask the question and get out of the way. It's, we want to hear the guest and we don't want to hear how smart you think you are. And answering the question for them, it's like stop it. Just let them let them do their thing. Uh, so oftentimes, I'll be listening to a podcast like that, and they'll have a podcaster on, and it's like, okay, that's a, that's a nice new way of picking up somebody new. Yeah, you know, this this American Life, and uh, it's just it's so great to hear those producers and the way they ask questions. It, it's great. Ira Glass is the best long form podcast. I've been a long time listener. Uh, then we started at about the same time, uh, but the, they just kept doing it every week from the get go, whereas I wasn't. And so uh, they that they definitely hit a uh, a critical mass far far earlier than uh, than I ever did, and I'm not even close to what they do. 
but they uh but they just show up every week they do their thing and that that's a great show i'm more drawn i love narrative podcasts i love interview podcasts and i'm always listening to be like oh how can i improve there and uh, like i said like kind of reading the defense going to the film and seeing like oh how do they do that how do they how do they uh follow up on that or they should have followed up on that on that part and so kind of playing Monday morning quarterback with how people <laughs> people interview people I it's uh if it's kind of like if you want to be a good writer you need to read a lot so if you want to be a good podcaster you got to listen to a ton of podcasts and and uh see what decisions the producers are making cuz the more and more you do this you can start to hear where they made a decision where they made a cut and uh and it, it's very subtle but the more you do this I'm sure you know this Jason it's just like you can you can see it and hear it in in the audio and be like, oh, okay, I see what they did there. And how can people find your show? Let's see. Uh, my show is it's it's uh, right now. It's if you just googled um, Google or put in the search of Apple Podcasts or anywhere, um, the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, and uh, it's going to be sort of transitioning to just CNF soon. But Creative Nonfiction Podcast is where it is now. Uh, my website is brendanomera.com. That's the home of the creative nonfiction podcast. And, uh, I'm on Twitter at Brendan O'Mara and at CNF pod. Instagram is at CNF pod and Facebook is the creative nonfiction podcast. So all those, all those places you could get your, get your fix of, of, uh, what I've been doing the last several years. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Jason, for having me on. This was a blast to be able to, uh, to be able to just talk shop in this sense. And you give me a platform to do it. This was a wonderful experience. And uh, I wish you the best success with the, with this show.